I want to try something, but I don't know if it'll work, and I don't know if I can find an appropriate subject. How about, uh, how about Zion? Is Zion available? Hey, Zion, could you come and help me? Would you come and help me? Come on. Yeah, I need a helper. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. One of the things that we do in our church, we tell parents and try to teach them to teach their children as a very foundational learning experience to come to them when they call them. And so for a child to come to its mother and father is important. Why? Well, because it's a, it's a basic command that will start the child on the road to obedience when things are more uh, serious in an emergency or whatever. That's one reason. But a, another greater reason is that it's the beginnings of show, showing a child that we live under authority, that they live under authority, that they have to submit to God in their lives in some way that's real and practical. And so we teach them to come to us. And then if it works well and we do our job, they come to us most of the time. Thank you. You want to go back to your daddy? Okay. Thank you for your help. You're a good helper. So here's what happens. Our children sometimes balk at coming to us. They don't want to come. Well, why don't they want to come? Well, sometimes it's because they're afraid. And I would say very seldom are they afraid. Usually if they're afraid of going to their mother and the father, it's usually because they did something wrong and they're going to get punishment, right? They're going to get disciplined. And so they're afraid in those situations, but that's usually not the case. They're afraid sometimes... When I do the stupid thing I do, when we have uh, small group lunches at my house, and you guys are visiting with your young children, and I see the child, and I think, oh, I want to hold that child, you know, a little guy like Zion or a little girl. And so I say, come over here. Come on over and see good old Pastor Max. And the child takes a couple of steps because they've been in this process of learning obedience when somebody calls them, and then they take a look at good old Pastor Max. And then I think to myself, you idiot, you did it again. Because then the the parents who are sitting there are thinking, my child, I must show that my child has learned the foundational thing that needs to be learned. And, and And they have to show it in front of Pastor Max, of all people. And I know I've created this incredible problem for you. I'm sorry. It's happened to many of you, I'm telling you. And I, I always forget until after it's done. It happened with Stephen about a week ago. Was it with me, Stephen? He was at our house, and it happened in front of him. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, "Idiot, Stephen," because <laughs> he knows he's done the same stupid thing. So we just have to just learn to swoop in and pick the kids up and enjoy them that way. The other reason our children don't come when we call them, though, is is the one that's much more basic to who they are and who we are. And that is, within their hearts, there's rebellion. And so what happens with our children when they don't come to us? Well, we see them, we say, come to us. And the child will, sometimes they'll run to us. But a lot of times they'll take a couple of steps, and then they'll stop. And they'll remember that there's competing interests on their life and on their time. 
And then they'll maybe just go off there. And we realize we have to teach some more, right? Or maybe they'll stop and they'll think, this would be a good time for me to exercise my parent. And they'll say, oh, I'm just going to stay here. And sometimes at that moment, they do something interesting. They look at us and they... It's, it's, part of, it's part of their winning the battle, and it's also part of their uh, uh, hypocrisy, you understand. They'll look at us and they'll just <laughs> smile. And they're looking at us and smiling as if to say one of two things, as if to say, uh, it ain't going to happen and we'll see if you do what you're going to have to do. Or they'll look at us and they'll say, and they're smiling and they're saying, I'm showing you that I'm obedient. I'm showing you that I'm obedient. I'll give service to you with my smile. But it's not obedience at all. And what we want is we want our children to draw near to us. We want them to learn how to come to us and to overcome the, the uh, competing interests because the reality is that our lives are spent in drawing near, either to the world or to God. And this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at, is our lives supposed to be drawing near to God, but that we have the competing interests of this world. And I want to start by giving some background. First, I want to go to Genesis chapter 3, and uh, you can look if you want to, but I'll be reading just parts of it, starting at verse 6. Now, wait a minute. Before I say that, before we get to this part, I want you to understand that in the garden, there was a different reality. In the garden, there wasn't a competing interest before the fall. And so Adam, when God, we don't see it explicitly in the scripture, but we know implicitly by what happened prior to the fall, that God would come to the garden and he would be with Adam, he would talk with him and he would be present with him, and that Adam wouldn't hide himself from God, but he would come and approach God. He would draw near to God in the garden. There was a relationship and it was sweet. We don't know all the details of the reality of it because we don't really comprehend truly everything that was going on with Adam and God at that time. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot. We know that God is and was God then and that Adam was not God. He was his creature. So there was some way in which Adam was approaching God uh, in the right state of humility, but it's not the humility we understand as we approach God having to acknowledge our sin right? It's a different thing. And so Adam didn't have to flee from God. He didn't have to hide from God prior to the fall. But then we come to chapter 3, and we see that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that we were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then it goes into the blame-shifting section where, you know, she made me do it, he made me do it. Something brand new. Now, 
Adam doesn't approach God. He doesn't draw near to God. In fact, Adam tries to hide himself from God. They fashion coverings out of leaves, and then they hide in the trees. They try to find the thickest thicket so that they can hide in it, so that God would not see them. They're ashamed, and they won't draw near. And this is the beginning, as we see from that point on. If you read the Bible, you see that there's, they're ejected from the, from the garden, and there seems to be a, a, a continued moving away from man and God, a, a continued and growing separation of interaction and proximity. And it's that way, although with a few places of, of contact, like with Noah and the ark and different places of contact, it's that way for a while until we come to Abraham where God initiates his redemptive story in the, in a, in the beginning of its revealed way. It was hidden even in Genesis 1. Even in, it was hidden even in, after the fall when he fashioned the, 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 the clothing for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. It was hidden there, his redemptive intention. But when we come to Abraham, he starts to, to lay it open. And he starts to, to put together the reality of what's going to happen and set up the system that's going to come that will make it possible for his son to come and do the work that he does. And so he says to Abraham, this is what's going to happen. I've chosen you. I've chosen your descendants. There is a promised seed that's coming. That's referring to Christ. I've chosen all this. It's all being done according to my will. And then... He tells him even that there's going to be a time when the people are put into Egypt in in captivity. And that after 420 years, is it? That they're going to be coming out of Egypt. And that's what happened to the day they came out of Egypt. And then they went on with Moses. And they drew near to Sinai. And they're at the base of Sinai and God is there and he's going to give them the law. And how are the people? Are they running up to the mountain and saying, yes, we want to hear you? Is that how they are in the, in, this, in the account of Sinai? No. We don't want to hear his voice. Moses, you go and listen for us. And then you come back and tell us what he said. The mountain is thundering. It's shaking. It's quaking. And there's lightning. And it's fearful. And they don't want to draw near to God. Moses, you go and see for us. And then you tell us what he says. After the fall... And at Sinai, the same reality. We don't want to come close to him. We want the benefit. We realize there's a problem, and they're realizing it more and more. But we just don't want to come close to him. We know he's powerful. We know he's acted in certain ways. But wow, we don't want to come close to him. And so God institutes the priesthood. And so the priests are able to draw near into the Holy of Holies, the whole, the tabernacle and the temple, the, the process of worship. The sacrificial system is put into place. And only certain men are allowed to do it, and then only under certain conditions, and then only when they uh, kill animals and the blood is poured out to allow them to get into the proximity to the place where God comes around the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple of itself. And they're the only there, and they go in there, and they tie bells on the guy's leg. You know, they tied bells on the priest's leg when he went into the holy of holies, just in case what. So they would know if he was struck dead, so that they could take the rope that was tied to his ankle and pull his body out. If the bells stopped ringing, then he wasn't dead. Is that right? I've always heard that's true. Is that in scripture? You don't think so? Well, Stephen knows. It sounded good, didn't it? 
that's an awkward moment. <laughs> Isn't that true? Tim Wagner, he's not here, he's in the first service. I didn't say that in the first service, so. Okay, I'll find that out for you and we'll send out an email. But it was fearful. Bells are no bells, ropes are no ropes, it was fearful. And they could be struck dead. And so, at some point, the Ark of the Covenant was outside of Jerusalem, and David wanted to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And so David has a procession, and they're bringing the Ark to Jerusalem. And you know the account of Uzzah. As they're coming toward the city, the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah reaches out his hand. Well, he's not supposed to do that. He's being presumptuous. And he touches the ark. And God strikes him dead. And so David is terrified. He's terrified. And he says, I'm not bringing the ark into Jerusalem. If all that happened was the ox stumbled and Uzzah touched it, I'm not bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Holy God. Revealing himself. Setting up the process whereby he will bring salvation. Setting it up for Jesus Christ to come. And then we have the coming of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we are able to draw near to God through Jesus Christ, because he's always... He's always making intercession for us, and he has saved us. He is able to save us forever. Unlike the priests, unlike those who went into the Old Testament, into the temple, unlike those who came and and had to offer sacrifices over and over again. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not with his creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, And so Christ himself comes and he sheds his blood and inaugurates the new covenant and makes it possible for us to draw near to God. It's different than Adam drawing near to God because we aren't aren't in the position that Adam was in. We never will be. But we do draw near to God. We are, the, the gap, the The divide has been closed because of Jesus Christ. And we're able to approach God and have relationship with him. 
It says in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. It couldn't do it. But Jesus Christ did. He made perfect those who draw near. And he continues. He continues to exist as the one interceding with God for us. Verse 18, Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There doesn't need to be any more sacrifice. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere faith, I'm sorry, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We now have a high priest. It's a whole different situation. There was a priest in the Old Testament. He was a priest. There was a high priest in the Old Testament. He was a high priest, small h, in relation to Christ. Christ is the high priest. Capitalize everything. Make it a big font in your mind. The high priest, Jesus Christ. And so we come to our text this morning. And there, would you go ahead and go to the next I want you to look at verse 8, because it's really the only important one in the chapter, okay? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We really don't need anything else, do we? When I was in Cincinnati, I used to work at a bookstore about 26 years ago, and I was the Bible and reference salesman, and they would sell precious Bible promise books. And you know that verse would probably be in in those books, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And those books were full of all kinds of promises. It's interesting, though, that 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 precious promise comes in a context. Have you thought about the context? Let's read it together from the beginning, please. If it wasn't for the context, what we would be thinking is, oh, well, this is a win-win situation. Sounds easy, sounds good. But it doesn't, it doesn't come alone. It comes with a context. It comes with specific direction and clarification as to the cross we would bear as we would draw near to God. So verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not, the source, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself, yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now think back. Think back to Zion as he came up to help me out with the illustration. Think about our children and the children you've seen when they've been called to draw near. And think about the responses. And think about the fact that some people that were called to draw near to God, but some people are afraid. Now, it's not usually the people we think of that are afraid. Uh, Up in Toledo, they're building a building. And... In the process of building this building, one of the elders and one of the pastors went to an auction of the school system where they were having a fire sale. And they were auctioning things away. And they were in a room. The auctioneer would take everybody into a room, and they would say, okay, everything in this room, who who bids? And the men that were there bidding typically were just um, scrappers. They're They're not men who keep scrapbooks. They're men who have really rusty old three-quarter ton pickup trucks and wear bib overalls or suspenders. And they're big and burly. And they like to carry around heavy metal. And they take it and they sell it at scrapyards. And so this pastor, who's a, a short and who's a short man, and then this elder who's a little taller and very thin go in amongst these burly scrappers. And they are bidding because they want to outfit their new church building with inexpensive furnishings. And so the scrappers come to them after they find out that they're from the church and they're wanting to furnish their building. The scrappers come to them and they come up and whisper, listen, we know you're from that church. You just tell us whatever it is you want. We won't bid on it at all. Right? And so... They end up buying a hundred and some tables for $150. I mean school-grade tables, really, really nice for a buck a piece or, or, that, or somewhere around that. And what those scrappers would have done is they would have just torn the legs off those tables and thrown the legs into their pickup truck and took them to the metal yard and gotten money for them. But isn't it interesting that those scrappers had fear of God? They were afraid to bid over a church. They were afraid of God. They had, there was no indication they were believers, that they had faith in Jesus Christ. They were just afraid to bid over a church because the church represents God, and God is God. They were God-fearing men. And so these men got to get all their tables. And I look at it, I heard that story, and I thought to myself, these men fear God. And I, I thought about all the people in the churches across the country who wouldn't who who say, oh yeah, I fear God. And they wouldn't go so far as to give up a cheap table that they're going to scrap for some, what, five bucks because of that fear of God. And they call themselves Christians all day long. And these men really do fear God. And I'm only saying this to make a point. And that is that it isn't the people we think of when we think of people who have a legitimate fear of God, and even if you think about those men and, and think their fear is legitimate. It is. We all have, should have that kind of a legitimate fear of God. And they may not approach him just because of that fear. 
But most of us don't draw near because we have competing invitations. God has called us to draw near, but then we kind of smile like the child and do what Isaiah says in chapter 29, verse 13. We draw near with our words and our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Far, far away. But we're making the appearance not even willing to do as as much of an act as those burly men in in Toledo would do in their fear of God. So we have to look at the source and the context around it. And the source of our quarrels and our conflicts is our pleasures. The word is the word from which we get the word hedonist. We're hedonists. We seek after all of the things we want, all the things that make us feel good. We are hedonistic and hedonist. And so God says, he teaches us and gives us commands in this section, in the context of saying, draw near to me. He gives us commands that will help us to set ourselves aright. And first he says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. It would be blasphemous for us to think about having God as a friend on Facebook because it would so trivialize who he is. I think that it would be blasphemous. And that probably exists, I don't know. But the reality is that God says that friendship with the world is hostility toward him. The reality is that we are supposed to be friends of God and we're supposed to be hostile toward the world in opposition to the world. But that's not how it plays out in our lives because we're afraid to take those steps because we have so many competing interests, so many, many competing interests in our lives pressuring against us. It's like swimming upstream. Do you ever get into a a river to swim that had a pretty good current and try to make your way upstream? It's difficult, but that's how it is with the world. About 10 days ago, I think it was, I decided to sign off Facebook. I haven't, I don't have a, I don't consider myself a Facebook addict. My main reason for signing off, that it was so vexing to me when I got on it and read the things that I read, that people wrote and that they were interested in, it was just completely vexing. So I just said, I'm finally, I'm done with it. And I signed off Facebook. And do you know how easy that was? You know how easy that was? Well, first of all, I had to find the place in the Facebook world where you can sign off Facebook. Try that, for starters. And then, after I started the process of signing off, and they won't let you sign off unless you give a reason, and then after that's all done, then up flash all these pictures, and there's my grandson, Job. Big picture of Job. He's a handsome kid, right? And up above it, it says, Kyla will miss you. (laughs) And then right next to that, there's Colin and Kara Hobbs, and it says, Kara will miss you. And I forget the other two. I think Tim Bailey came up, and I knew he wouldn't miss me, so. (laughs) But I'm telling you something, though. For just a millisecond, in my mind, this is what I thought. Oh, 
Job's going to miss me. I mean, just a millisecond. That shows how stupid I am. You understand how worldly I am. Job's writing me all the time on Facebook. It's going to be so hard to train him to send an email. We have to swim against the tide. And let me tell you something. If it's hard for me to go through that process for a millisecond, and I hate Facebook. I don't know how to tell you how much I hate Facebook. It is... I don't know that it's a tool that can be redeemed for anything, honestly. But that's not a debate for now. For most of you, it's not. And I hate it. But then I think to myself, I know so many people for whom Facebook is their, is their primary expression of their own vanity and narcissism. And I think to myself, how in the world would they take the time to find how to sign off? And then what are they going to do when Job's picture comes up in front of them? I mean, my wife's behind me, sees Joe's picture, and she just goes, Oh! We signed her off, too. She wanted off. But how are they going to do it if, that's, if their life is so tied up in it? If your life is so tied up with it, how are you going get, to get off of it? Get off of it. It's going to destroy you. You can't draw near to God with it. Job won't miss you. Nobody who's really your friend will miss you. Nobody. And if, it, if that's the only connection you have to people, they're not your friends. And then he says, submit, therefore, to God. Submit. Well, what does that mean? It means to arrange or position yourself under God. Find the spot. Position yourself. It's not on Facebook. You're not going to find it there. It's not in the movies. It's not in Hollywood. It's not in... Uh, sports, it's not in any of the things that are comp- competing interests in your life. None of them. You have to position yourself under the Almighty God, submitting to Him. Arrange yourself there under Him. Then it says, Res- resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, resist means just to stand opposite Him. He's on the other team. You're on this team, he's on the other team. But let me tell you, you know, teams usually have something that sets them apart, colors, right? Usually it's a uniform. Well, if if in every way you and I look like we're wearing the exact same uniform that Satan's team is wearing, where are we showing any resistance to him? If we're doing all the things that all the people on his team are doing, where are we showing any kind of indication that we're on the opposing team? Resist him. And, and it's not saying here that, that we're being, uh, that we're reviling. You know, we're not supposed to revile against angelic beings, and Satan is one. 
Not even Michael, the archangel, would revile against Satan when he was disputing over the body of Moses. That's what the scripture says. But we're not reviling when we're opposing him. We're saying, no, 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 we're not on your team. We won't submit to your colors, to your uniform. And we have power to do that. Do you know why? Because behind us stands Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And Satan looks at us and he says, there he is behind them. And there isn't a stand he can take against Jesus Christ. And he, and he flees. But not if we're wearing his colors. Not if we're standing with him. Only if we're standing opposing him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? We have so much stimulus in our lives constantly, constantly. How do we be quiet? I was talking with the small group leaders about this yesterday, and the fact is it's getting to such a a fevered pitch that our lives, if you think about being quiet before God and and being devotionally uh, quiet before him and meditating and reading his word and prayer, it's getting to where we don't have a moment to do it. Everything comes into our life. I asked them at the meeting, I said, what is it like to be at, what's a name today for, for a, uh, a nightclub or a party? And somebody said rave. How many of you guys have heard the term rave? You know what a rave is, apparently. It's just a party, right? It's just an out-of-control party, a hedonistic party. And I was thinking about that reality and thinking, how in the world are we quiet before God today? It's like we want to be in the library. We want to be in a library that's well lit so we can read and it's quiet so that we're not distracted and, 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 and it's calm. And our lives are, are, are constantly assailed in a fevered pitch of a rave where there's strobe lights going and otherwise it's dark. And it's loud, and everything's moving all around us all the time. Try reading your Bible with a strobe light. Sit down and do it. See how that works out for you. But that's really what we do as believers today. That's really what we're about in our, in our drawing near to God. We think we're going to draw near to God in the rave. And we don't spend any time going aside and getting alone and getting in the closet. Or whatever that represents in your life, getting in the library, getting in a place where you can be alone with God and meditate on his word and pray and be quiet and think about him. Or even listen to someone talk about him. It's a way we hide ourselves. It's the fig leaves and the trees and the bushes. It's how we hide from God. We, we don't just have external stimulus coming at us. It's inside us. We want it. Because if we can keep the television running all night long and keep a light on in the house all night long and keep our mouth running all day long when we're with anybody so that we can't really talk about anything serious, if we can keep our fingers going all day long, tweeting and updating, 
We don't have to really stop and think for a minute about the reality of who we are and what we really need. And so it's our fig leaves, do you understand? It's our cover-up. It, it, it's the noise that, that will drown out God's voice speaking to us, calling us to draw near to him. And we have to be done with it. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He isn't telling us here to atone for our sin. You and I, we can't atone for our sin. We can't. Only Jesus Christ, only his blood can make atonement for our sin. So what does he mean when he says, cleanse our hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded? Well, what he's telling us is to be done with our sins. To wash our hands of them. Be done with them. Purify your hearts. You're double-minded. You're, you're in the rave and you're in the library. You think you're going to draw near to me, but you're in the rave. And, and you're... And are, we're out of step. We can't be calm. And then he says what? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. As I was reading this this past week, I was reading this, this be miserable, and I thought, huh, a command, be miserable, be miserable. And then I thought, you know, all across America on Sunday morning, there are going to be churches and pastors are going to stand up and they're going to say, This is a command of God to you. Be miserable. Now, there are some pastors who will stand up and do that this morning. But more often than not, we're not being told to be miserable. We've just brought the rave into the church. And we've set up another place where we can be busy and blot out God's commands and blot out his call to draw near to us. And give ourselves a lots, lots and lots of stimuli so that we don't see what God is saying. And we have that happening all around us. But he says, no, be miserable. Be miserable. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What does that mean, though? What is that for us? It really is connected with what follows it. Humble yourself in the presence of God, in the, in the presence of the Lord. Because the reality is, when we judge ourselves aright, when we stop, when we're quiet, when we consider who we are and who God is, we're sobered. There's not a time for rejoicing. I think about my sin, and I think sometimes that I'm just a bottomless vat. There's no bottom. It's just sin all the way down. And I don't know how. And at that moment, I think to myself, well, I have two choices. I can decide never to think about it again. Or I can draw near to God. And if I draw near to God, I've got to look full in the face of that vat of sin. I've got to see myself as I am. And you know what happens when I see myself as I am? 
I'm miserable. And I mourn and I weep. And my laughter is turned to mourning and my joy to gloom. But then, God says, I'll do something for you in that place. In that place, I'll do something for you. He says, you humble yourself before me, and I will exalt you. You see, in order to draw near to God, we have to see ourselves for what we truly are. In order to draw near to God, we need to confess to him who we really are. God wants us to depend on him. He wants us to be submitted to him. He wants to be the one who gets all the glory out of everything that happens with us. And he can do that when we see ourselves correctly. When we are submitted before him and humble before him. When we are crying out and saying, I'm miserable. I'm miserable. Help me, O God. Then what he does is he, he reaches down and he, he takes hold of us and he says, I'll lift you up. He picks us up. And then we receive proximity to him. We receive the joy of being close to God, our maker. We receive the benefits of that proximity. We, re- we receive his favor, his pleasure, his eye upon us. The hope of eternity with blessing and not damnation. Joy. But you don't go to joy through a rave. You go to joy through the cross. You can't get there any other way. And that's what he's telling us in this chapter. We want to just take the one verse and say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we want to just take that and import it into our life and into our festivities and into our vanity fair. And God says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. See the context. You're in big trouble. You have a big need. And I've made a provision for you, but you come to me with, through the means that I've set up for you to come to me. You don't, come, you don't just import me into your, into your, uh, your uh, wild party of a life. We're all tempted to love this world. And God is calling us away from it. And he's sanctifying us away from it. And I'm, as I watch how evil increases, it's fearful for me. It's scary for me. As I watch how we give ourselves to it, it's scary. And... We aren't zealous for God. I was thinking about our church and about our life here, and and some people think our church is fanatical. Did you know that? Some people think we're fanatics, that we're so zealous we're fanatics. I have to tell you something. If If you could measure our zeal as a coal in the fire, what I think of is it's just like this little maybe flickering ember in the fire. That's our zeal. 
Once in a while, you see a little flicker and you say, there must be a little fire in in there somewhere. And people around us think we're fanatical. And the only reason why they think we're fanatical is that there's such a chill around us. There's such coldness around us and in us. But there's such coldness around us that we seem like fanatics. You know, a little, a little flickering ember in a 60 below zero freezer stands out. But we have, we have, we have no zeal. God wants us to draw near to him. He wants to be found by us. And he wants to exhibit us as, as vessels of his glory for honor. And he wants us each individually to be held and lifted up by him and, and taken to himself and, and be in close proximity and just to love us and say, yes, I was just waiting for you. You know, we sang that song, Revive Us Again, earlier. And I had a professor in college, and I remember him uh, speaking one time in chapel. He said, you know, we sing, we ask for revival, he said, but, but you know, the problem is you need to have the vival before you can have the revival. And many of us just need the vival. And many of us need the revival. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us a command to draw near to you. We ask, Lord, that you will make it true in our lives. Lord, would you humble us, turn our hearts to you, cause us to be humble before you, to confess our sin, to acknowledge who we are. Would you give us faith to believe in Jesus Christ who makes atonement for all of that vat of wickedness, that evil that we see, so that In seeing him, we are lifted to you, and in him we approach you, we draw near to you, because he has made us perfect for all time, and he sits interceding for us forever. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for your mercy to us in him. Lord, make us to be zealous people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.